0: There are 1.8 million acres of public land in Western North Carolina, and those lands are among the most visited in the Southern Appalachians. The Nantahala and Pisgah National Forest receive over 10 million visitors annually, and the Blue Ridge Parkway and Great Smoky Mountains National Park are in the top three most visited parks in the country. DuPont State Recreational Forest had its highest visitation ever last year, recording 1.3 million visitors. So it's easy to understand why people love coming to these mountains. They hold some of the country's best trails, cleanest waters, and over 2,400 native species of fish, plants, birds, reptiles, and amphibians. If you have ever visited these mountains, they no doubt hold a special place in your heart. But what if I told you it wasn't too long ago that these mountains were at great risk? In the 1970s and 80s, timber was king in the National Forests, and recreation and wildlife took a back seat. 5,000 acres per year were being clear cut in the Nantahala and Pisgah National Forests, and the forest plan at the time was oriented toward timber harvest, which called for cutting nearly the entire forest over a 100 year period. In this episode, I sit down with Josh Keller, the public lands field biologist with Mountain True, and we talk about how a powerful plea to the chief of the North Carolina Forest Service led to a revised and sustainable forest plan in 1994 and likely saved the Nanahala and Pisgah National Forests. Josh shares his thoughts on the long-overdue forest plan that was just completed and Mountain True's hopes for what is included in the final draft that is expected this coming July. We also talk about how Mountain True works diligently to help conserve and protect our waters and forests. They are keenly aware of stressors like demand for access, multiple-use mandates in national forests, and the challenge of maintaining resources where declining funding has led to closures of campgrounds, trails, roads, and picnic areas. This is one of the most important episodes we've ever done because it represents what is so special about the Southern Blue Ridge and the threats our forests face with increased usage and declining appropriations. We owe a great deal of gratitude to organizations like Mountain True that work so hard to ensure we have beautiful, clean, and sustainable places to explore. I am truly grateful. Let's get to it. You're listening to Exploration Local, a podcast designed to explore and celebrate the people and places that make the Blue Ridge and Southern Appalachian Mountains special and unique. My name is Mike Andrus, the host of Exploration Local. Join us on our journey to explore these mountains and discover how they fuel the spirit of adventure. We encourage you to wander far, but explore local. Let's go. Today, I am joined by Josh Kelly. He serves as the public lands biologist with Mountain True, and he is a local to this area. He was born in Madison County. He's a graduate of UNC Asheville, where he earned a degree in biology. Josh is a public lands enthusiast, and he works so hard to promote ecological restoration and responsible development issues related to public lands. Josh, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here. It is really great to have you. Thank
1: you, Mike. Great to be here.
0: So in our area, we you and I talked about this, I think it was last week. In our area, we have so many great rivers and waterfalls, which are some of really my favorite areas to explore. And that was my first exposure to Mountain True. But it was through one part of your organization, which is clean waters. And I realized that through the Green River Keeper. But Mountain True mm-hmm. is so much more than just clean waters. And I can't wait to unpack that with you here today. So let's talk about who Mountain True is And the type of work that you all are involved with to give the listeners and even myself a really sort of broad stroke of what it is that you all do. And then you and I are going to get really specific on some things that you're very, very passionate about.
1: Great. That's that sounds good. Um, Yeah. So Mountain True is an environmental organization and we uh, came into existence in 2015 and we are the result of a merger between four existing environmental organizations across western north carolina north georgia and east tennessee and yeah we we do uh pretty much work on anything related to the environment and people in western north carolina so that's you know clean water as you already mentioned yeah. that is healthy communities and how our communities grow and develop and uh it's public land and forests um, you know we're blessed with uh, a, a great wealth of public lands in our in our area and uh, we try to try to advocate for them being managed for the benefit of everyone. And we also work to some extent on other issues like uh, clean energy and basically any sort of pollution issue that would come up in our region.
0: That clean energy and the pollution piece is really, really big because you're really measuring the contaminants, silt, things like this that are being dumped into our rivers and creeks and streams. And, And I know that you all play a huge part of really kind of monitoring that and making sure that those things just don't happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mountain True is a pretty large organization now. When I started, there were five employees. Now there's 23. And among those 23 employees, we have about six people who are dedicated to uh, water quality. And so they look after the, the water in the whole Watauga River Basin, the whole French Broad Basin, which includes the Pigeon and the Nolichucky, and the Green River and Broad River Basin, and also the Hiawassee River Basin. And, and even more than that, because, we, you know, even where we don't have people dedicated to a particular stream, we still care about water quality on the Little Tennessee River or the Tuckasegee the River. And so, yeah, we have uh, staff and volunteers out all the time measuring E. coli in the, in the rivers, measuring for chemical pollutants, trying to make sure it's safe to swim and fish and recreate and all the streams that, that make this area great.
0: I'm probably going to say it a million times in this episode, but I really do appreciate all of that work that you all do. And I uh, must say that me being down here, the Green River is the one that I am around the most. And so I am so thankful that our water water quality down here is really, really good. And I don't follow it as much in the Watauga and some of the other areas, but I, I hope and imagine that it's it's very similar to the uh, purity of the, the Green River. Or maybe the Green River is just an anomaly. I'm not sure.
1: The, the Green River is better than average, for wow. sure. Wow. Uh, you know, because it has less urban development and 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 uh, higher forest cover than a lot of uh, watersheds. But in general, you know, Western North Carolina and the Southern Blue Ridge, uh, the the mountains we're in here, has better water quality than almost anywhere else in the U.S. We have a lot of water, number one, because we get a lot of rain. We have these high mountains that catch the rain, and also we have we have a, a huge amount of forest cover. Our region is approximately uh, you know about 80% covered in forest. Uh, which is a lot higher than most of uh, the eastern United States. And, uh, you know, that, that forest provides a great benefit in filtering the rain that comes out and filtering any runoff that comes off of, of other lands and keeping our, our, our forest clean. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons that uh, public land is so important. And, and you know, my work in, in public lands is really, it is all about making sure that public lands are managed for the, for the benefit of everyone. And one of the biggest benefits off of public land is clean water
0: public land. When we hear the word public land, let's talk about what that is and what it actually entails, because I think I probably even need a clearer understanding.
1: Well, that's a great question, really so western north carolina by itself this doesn't include the surrounding states but just western north carolina has approximately 1.8 million acres of public land and that's a lot but you know that when you look at the whole region it's five million acres so it's you know it's still a minority of what's out there and public land can be any land that's owned by uh, a public entity so that could be your local town or county it could be the state of north carolina Uh, It it could also be the federal government. And uh, the majority of our public land in western North Carolina is federal land that's owned in common by all citizens of the United States. So we're very lucky to have some amazing national park units in western North Carolina, like Smoky Mountains National Park and the Blue Ridge Parkway, and a really tiny one that most people don't know about that's also pretty cool, uh, the Carl Sandburg home. Our biggest unit of public land, though, is our Nantahala and Pisgah National Forest that total just over a million acres. And, you know, the National Forests are a little, little different uh, in their management than national parks, where national parks are focused on preservation and recreation. Those are the two primary missions of the National Park Service. The National Forest Service has a multiple-use mandate, and they're required to provide for clean water, for fiber from, from timber, for uh, minerals— for mining, for recreation, for wildlife habitat, for wilderness as a, as, a, as a newer value that's been placed on the Forest Service. And so you can imagine that sometimes some of those values can be in a bit of tension. So, you know, mining and recreation may not always get along so well, or mining and wildlife habitat, for example. Uh, so the, the job of national forests is a lot more complicated and a lot harder than national, uh, than national parks. And additionally, national forests have, uh, from the beginning, been the lead agency that's charged with protecting the public from wildfires, mm. um, and and you know for their first eighty to a hundred years of the national forest history, I would say eighty years was was too focused really on putting out fires, which has led to an accumulation of fuels and things that uh, has put the, the Western United States in great danger of these catastrophic wildfires we're seeing today. But that's a little bit uh, in the weeds, so we should probably just <laughs> stick to local issues.
0: Well, but you're bringing up something that's a good lead in because we're talking about, or we want to talk about some of the biggest challenges that are facing public lands today. Let's talk a little bit about what those are, because I know the public lands are are things that you specifically are very passionate about.
1: Yeah. So yeah, public lands are are this this huge, huge asset, and they're they provide so many benefits, but um, they're facing a lot of stressors, a lot of challenges. And I guess uh, a good place to start as far as challenges would be just the challenge of meeting the demand that's out there. And you know. Um, the, Our public lands are among the most visited uh, here in the southern Appalachians of any public lands in the nation. So, uh, you know, Nantahala and Pisgah National Forests receive over 10 million visitors annually. Smoky Mountains National Park and the Blue Ridge Parkway are usually in the top three of uh, most visited national park units in the country. And, you know, DuPont State State Forest, that place doubles in usage pretty much every year. It gets over a million visits a year now. And it's because, number one, these lands are spectacular. Mm. You know, there's nowhere else you can go and see a 6,000-foot mountain within, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles of driving from here. And additionally, we're within, uh, you know, a reasonable drive from, you know, probably – 60 to 80 million people that's right uh, within within a day's drive of, of a massive population so we have a lot of folks coming up to to vacation from charlotte and atlanta and nashville uh, washington dc and you know pretty much all over the mid-atlantic and southeast uh, and certainly you know a lot of people from florida as well so we're just positioned in such a way that we're really in danger of being loved loved to death mm. on our local public land Tied into that also is the amount that the public invests in public land. And unfortunately, the investments since about 1980 have been uh, on a downward trajectory when you adjust for inflation.
0: Where's the fall off with the financial piece? Well, uh, on the federal side, it's mostly been
1: appropriations from Congress, you know, and the way that the presidency and Congress negotiates over the budget. So, uh, you know, the majority of our public land funding comes from just direct appropriations from Congress. You know, that's for the U.S. Forest Service, for example. That's on the order of you know, 2 to $3 billion a year, which sounds like a big number until you add it up next to the rest of the federal budget and you see it's less than 1% mm. uh, of the federal budget. And national parks are probably somewhere in, in a similar range. I, I don't have as good a pulse on that national park budget. But basically the, the, budget, the budget numbers have been pretty flat for a long time, but, you know, inflation keeps going up. Mm. And so what you have is you have fewer and fewer public employees that are tasked with maintaining and watching over these lands. And that means that we're seeing basically less resources available to keep campgrounds open or to uh, maintain picnic areas or maintain trails, parking areas. Uh, And, you know, we've seen a a huge decline in the mileage of trails in uh, Western North Carolina in the past 20 years. We've lost over 100 miles of trail because there's simply not enough appropriations from Congress to keep these trails open. Uh, All the while, we have more and more people visiting our our forests.
0: So you have those two things colliding, which is really putting a big stressor on our public lands.
1: Right. And so what what happens, just for example, uh, you know, the the way that most people uh, access the forest is on roads. And the Forest Service, most people don't know this, but the U.S. Forest Service manages more roads than the uh, U.S. interstate highway system. And the Nantahill and Pisgah National Forest alone has 2,200 miles of roads they manage. About, uh, if I correct, somewhere between four and seven hundred miles of those are. are open to the public for driving any time of the year. Some of them are seasonally closed. Some of them are open year round. A lot of them are gated roads that are only used for uh, logging projects or for fire uh, work or, or things of that nature. But what we, what we see now is that the Forest Service is uh, behind in the road maintenance by over $40 million in Western North Carolina. That's all because they haven't been given the money to maintain the roads. And what, what that means is that the roads are in poor condition uh, you may not be able to get down that road with your vehicle. And more than that, you have a lot of sediment coming off of these gravel roads and getting into streams that are otherwise the cleanest water anywhere. Uh, they're being, you know, you know, in some cases choked with silt, and that's causing damage to our native trout populations and other wildlife species that depend on those streams. And the same, same thing can be said of trails. Trails are also a pretty big contributor to sediment in our uh, in our streams.
0: You know, my head is spinning right now. To be honest with you, Josh, and in, in not in a bad way, but in a good way. I, in just 20 minutes, I'm starting to connect so many dots between the conservation piece, the places that I like to enjoy, the places that I enjoyed, you know, 10 years ago that that are closed. I can't access those anymore, and I'm starting to to get a a little bit clearer picture. So. Thank you for helping to shed some light on that. Let's talk about the Nantahala Forest and the Pisgah National Forest, about the things that make both of these forests so special. Now, you've you've touched on that a little bit, but let's unpack that a little bit more about just what makes both of these national forests so special.
1: Well, so these forests, uh, like I said, they're a million acres, uh, and th- that makes them in-, in total, and they're managed uh, together as one unit. They have two names, but they're managed together. So uh, the Nanahala and Pisgah together are the largest unit of public land in the southern Appalachians. And, you know, the southern Appalachians are a world-renowned um, hotspot for uh Biological diversity and for temperate hardwood forests. You know, we may very well live in the in the highest quality, best protected area of of temperate hardwood forest in the world. Uh, other areas of the of the planet, uh, in, for instance, in East Asia and in Europe, have been much much more heavily developed and much more exploited than our Southern Appalachian Mountains. And large units of public land, like the Nantahala and Pisgah and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and all the other national forests and surrounding states have uh, really led to this incredible restoration story where, you know, around 1940, only 50% of the region was forested. And, and as I earlier said, about 80% of our region is now forested uh, doing great part to the restoration that's occurred on these, these federal public lands. So, you know, when you're talking about the Nana Hill and Pisgah, you're talking about two forests that have uh, the highest uh, mountain east of the Mississippi river and Mount Mitchell mm-hmm. talking about a forest that have some of the best rivers in the entire country in the form of the Nanahala, you know, the Chattuga, the little Tennessee, the French Broad, the Nolichucky, the Catawba. We're talking about rivers that have the headwaters for drinking water for tens of millions of people. Everywhere from, you know, Atlanta to Charlotte to to Knoxville and another big urban areas in the uh, the southeast and and so much more, you know, 2,000 species of native plants, over 200 species of nesting songbirds, over 100 species of native fish, about 80 species of uh, native reptiles and amphibians. So, I mean, it's just an an area of remarkable diversity, uh, just beautiful landscape and and amazing uh, richness and, and water and also an incredible area of cultural diversity, too, with uh, just so much in the way of uh, Native American culture, of uh, Euro-American and African-American culture that is all mixed and mingled here for for hundreds of years. And, um, uh, you know, I could go on and on, but this is a very, very special part of the country. And Nantahill and Pisgah National Forest, being the largest unit of public land, uh, really encapsulate so much of that.
0: Can you talk about how we at a federal national level that we make plans for responsibility in each of these forests, or I guess in all of our forests, but we're talking about the Nana and the Pisgah forests. but uh, how has that plan benefited impacted in the past and where do you see it benefiting and impacting as we move forward?
1: Yeah. Well, so there's, there's a lot of history with that, uh, with, Forest planning. That history really goes back to the 1970s when the United States was having an environmental awakening. You know, and in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, timber was king of national forest. Recreation and wildlife and all these other values didn't have as big a, a seat at the table. And in 1976, there was a big old clear cut, uh, several hundred acre clear cut in West Virginia that happened to join a, uh, a turkey hunting club. And those turkey hunters were pretty influential people, and they got the uh, ear of Senator Byrd from West Virginia, who got the ear of his colleagues, and they said, you know, national forests should have more oversight, and they should have uh, long-term plans on how they're going to manage their land. So they came up with this law called the National Forest Management Act that required all 197 million acres of national forests and grasslands to have a management plan that would uh, guide their management over a 10- to 20-year uh, timeline. And – Uh, Starting in uh, 1982, the Forest Service started making uh, forest plans uh, all across the country. And in western North Carolina, our first forest plan came out in 1987. And what that forest plan was oriented towards was timber harvest uh, to the, you know, kind of the exclusion of a lot of other values. And it basically called for cutting almost the entire forest in a hundred year period. Oh, my gosh. And so, uh, you know, at at that time, an average of 5,000 acres a year were being clear cut on Nanahale and Pisgah National Forest, And that's just for reference, that's an area about the size of the city of Asheville, oh clear goodness. cut every year. And you know, people didn't like that, it wasn't popular. And so the Western North Carolina Alliance, which was the predecessor of Mountain True, really led an effort to challenge that forest plan. And they challenged it directly to the chief of the forest service. And the chief took a look at that in 1992 and said, you know, you're right, this is not sustainable. There, we cannot maintain water quality and recreation and wildlife and all these other values if we're clear-cutting this much. And so the the chief of the Forest Service uh, ordered Nantahill and Pisgah to revise their forest plan in 1994, which they did. And that, that led to the sustainable forest plan we have now. And, you know, while that, that plan is sustainable, it's not it's, it's, it's out of date at this point. Uh, you know, a, a lot has changed since 1994. And so we have been in the midst of a, another forest plan revision since, gosh, I guess about 20. 13 or 2014. It's been eight years. On Friday, the decision, the draft decision for the new forest plan comes out and the very final plan will come out uh, probably in July of 2022. So, you know, this is a big deal because it sets all of the goals and sets all of the regulations around managing this million acres in the public interest for the next 20 years. Uh, you know so all of these fabulous recreation areas we have all these amazing streams these incredibly diverse forests all the wildlife habitat you know just all all of the benefits that we derive from the national forest uh, will be affected by the outcome of this plan and what mountain true really wants to see come out of this plan is really smart really realistic and really ambitious goals for meeting the challenges of the day like how uh, is the Forest Service going to expand uh, recreation access while also maintaining water quality? You know, how, how is the Forest Service going to do timber harvest and provide habitat for wildlife that needs young forest habitat while preventing non-native invasive plants from taking over those areas that have been logged? You know, how will the Forest Service maintain and increase the amount of older forest on this national forest, which was decimated, you know, about a hundred years ago, prior to the formation of our national forests? Uh, How can we maintain and increase that resource uh, while also managing fire and managing uh, timber harvest and and things of that nature? So there's a a lot of these trade-offs that the plan will be dealing with and needs to have uh, really good strategies for dealing with those and really ambitious goals for meeting the challenges we face, like climate change and non-native invasive plants, and increasing human use, uh, increasing floods, increasing wildfires, and all these these other issues we're we're looking at coming in the future.
0: So, with this plan with the U.S. Forest Service, is this something that is more you know that is top down? Is it coming out of you know Washington, or is this something where? organizations like Mountain True and people like yourself have input and involvement and have some sort of influence over what this plan looks like?
1: Well, I sure hope uh, that local people and local organizations have influence, and I think that we do. Um, you know, there's, this forest plan has been the most robust public participation process in the history of forest plans. Over 25,000 uh, people have commented on this forest plan and and send in specific recommendations to the forest service and how they'd like to see the land managed uh you know mountain true and you know over 20 other locally involved uh, organizations from uh you know recreation recreation organizations to wildlife organizations to forest products groups to water organizations to you know environmental groups have been involved in providing ideas on on how the forest service can thread the needle on this uh, on this forest plan and you know this forest really is probably you know for, for my money the most complex forest in the entire country because it's ecologically complex number 1 we have this great range of elevations from you know 1000 feet at the foot of the mountain all the way up to 6684 feet at the top of mount mitchell and we have uh you know uh, incredible diversity uh, of forest types and, on that elevation gradient and then we have this inc- this population pressure from a huge and diverse population that surrounds this forest and a lot of uh, a lot of different competing demands from different public interest groups and and how they'd like to use the forest so there, there, there re- it really is a hard task to thread the needle mm. on this forest plan but you know the forest service if they if they get it right it will be because of the fantastic participation from the public uh, they've had over the past eight years.
0: Can you talk to any of your personal experiences of giving some feedback or being an influencer somehow to the forest plan or your comments, you know, on behalf of yourself and Mountain True, can you share any of that with us?
1: Well, sure. You know, what I don't know, though, is is what's going to be in the final version of the plan. So I don't know how effective Mm. I have been. But um, Mountain True has, has advocated strongly for the natural benefits of the, from the forest. You know, things like the, there are about um, about only about 10% of our local forests are in existing old growth forests. These are places that were either never logged or so lightly logged that they've already recovered from that historical logging pressure. And they're they're special for pretty obvious reasons because they contain this uh, continuous legacy of forest cover and all the species that uh, that make up that forest. And so we've we've really advocated strongly that those be maintained in that old condition and not be the target of uh, future logging projects. and we've we've uh, also, really been advocates for leaving the parts of the forest that uh, are roadless uh, leaving them roadless we, we think that the 2200 miles of road that the nanahala and pisgah has is enough and pro- probably too much really to maintain into mm. the future and we've advocated strongly for maintaining the uh, the recreation infrastructure uh, the trails and parking areas and picnic areas and campgrounds that the, the public really needs to enjoy the forest and to be connected to the forest uh, you know, and that's one of the really huge benefits that that our public land has nowadays as as our population continues to grow and the region continues to urbanize. The, the real connection that a lot of people have with land is through public land. Hmm. You know, some people may not even have a yard, but if they're lucky enough to live within a day's drive of the southern Appalachians, they can still connect with beautiful natural areas that, you know, provide lots of benefits for for physical health and getting exercise, lots of psychological and spiritual benefits, et cetera. You know, obviously, uh, we've been big advocates for for water quality um, and um, and and preserving water quality and for preserving our uh, wild and scenic rivers mm. and and other forms of designation that can that can protect rivers and land into the long term.
0: Yeah, and even today. Somewhat related, but I saw uh, information come out from Ski Beach, uh, Beach Mountain, where they're partnering with you all to uh, ensure water quality that's flowing into the Watauga River. So even somebody like that, like I didn't even think in that category, but you're you're partnering with them, I guess, to, to help them educate, you know, how can they become safe and responsible, not only just users of the environment, but providers of these recreational opportunities, too. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah,
1: that is really cool, and, and that's an example of, you know, where we, we – our work uh, also occurs on private land. So, you know, beach mountain is a, is a ski area privately owned ski area. What's going on on beach mountain is that um, there is a leaky system of water pipes that causes a, uh, Something like forty percent of the water in those pipes to leak out and never get to people's homes, and because of that, there's a water shortage sometimes a year, and so the town, the municipality of Beach Mountain, has been looking at withdrawing water from the Watauga River, and we have an interest in keeping all the water as possible in the river for the fish, for the wildlife for people to swim in and recreate with, et cetera and uh, so the the actually the ski resort is on our side there. And they want they're encouraging the community of Beach Mountain to fix their infrastructure, to to plug the leaks in those pipes and to keep the water in the Watauga River. So uh, they're great partners.
0: So that's we talked about an organization that's getting involved. How can people get involved and participate in public land management, Josh?
1: Oh, there's so much need for that because, you know, as I was talking about earlier, uh, there's been a decline in public funding, especially at the federal level, but also at the state level in some cases at the local level for maintaining our public uh, parks our public forests. And, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of people are stepping up to the plate and and doing the work that the government used to do. Uh, so Mountain True would be an example of a group that's doing that work. We're helping to control non-native invasive plants. We're recently entered into agreement to do some trail maintenance on Pisgah National Forest. We do a lot of work to save uh, trees and to protect our streams on the national forest. But, uh, you know, groups like, uh, the Southern Offered Bicycle Association, a mountain bike group, probably maintains as much trail as anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other group that would be vying with them would be the Carolina Mountain Club that ha- maintains hundreds of miles of trails across Western North Carolina. So, you know, I would say people can participate and um, join a, one of these local groups that uh, represents an interest there that they're passionate about, whether that be hunting or fishing or hiking or bicycling or uh, photography. There's there's a group for any of these interest to make a difference on public land another way that folks can make a difference is get involved in actual policy making so i've been talking about this forest planning process once that's done that forest plan will be used to propose uh projects that could improve public land so a great example of that would be a topic that you covered a few weeks ago which is the old Fort trails project yeah so that's, that's actually a public policy project that community input has helped to shape and is continuing to shape and uh, will, you know, result in 40 miles of new trails for the Old Fort community that are sorely needed uh, to meet the demand that's on our forest for access. You know, and, and there are a lot of other projects like, uh, you know, for instance, I work on a lot of uh, a lot of my job is working on ecological restoration projects. So helping the Forest Service identify areas that need some active management to restore species habitat or restore water quality. There's a lot of work to be done on, uh, you know, on their timber projects to help them get their timber projects right. So make sure that if they're cutting timber, they're cutting it in the right places and in the right way. You know, there's a lot of work picking up trash, just just anything you can think of. There's a need out there in public lands. So, you know, so like I said, you can get involved with any of the groups that are working on public land or you can you can go on the website for Smoky Mountains National Park or Nana and Pisgah National Forest and there uh, on those websites there will be contact information and you can you can call the forest service or you can email them and say hey I want to be added to your scoping list and the scoping list will keep people up to date with all the new projects that are coming up either currently or in the future that they can be involved with
0: you know you're really bringing up an interesting point and I think it's probably what ultimately led me to kind of seeking you all out. And that is when you get involved, the old four trails project has opened my eyes to more things than I probably even know, or I'm aware of in this moment. And it led me to uh, volunteer. It's led me to get involved. It's led me to get involved and volunteer with, with other conservation groups too. And it's all in an effort to, you know, loving where you live, obviously and loving where you get to recreate, but it's also taken Mm -hmm. a personal you know, there's like a personal responsibility. It's like once you, once you start to peel back this, these layers, you can't help but get involved in trying to protect the very same things that you, you know, you're enjoying. And, you know, I, I've said in the last episode, for me, it's, you know, sort of a confession that, again, I, I just didn't think about these things to this level. I was a consumer. But uh, in this day and age, I think we need probably less consumption and, and a little bit more working together to, to make sure that all these areas are preserved and protected for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's that's a uh, such such a great perspective there because you know trails don't maintain themselves and uh, and the, you know the environment does, doesn't necessarily keep itself clean if people aren't paying attention either. So um, you know, I think one of the the great possibilities we have with public land is it's a way to connect people to land and it's a way to connect people to water. It's a way to connect people to each other so that we can work together to uh, to have the nice things that we all like like clean water and nice trails and beautiful views and uh, wildlife and fish habitat, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that ethic of of not only taking, but giving back, I think is a really, uh, really cool cultural ethic that I think public land can help to instill.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so very well said. So let's talk a little bit about you on a more on a personal level when it comes to this, um, since we're kind of heading down that stream a little bit, Tell me some of the things that brought you into this field and some of the things that have kept you into this field, Josh.
1: Oh, well, Mike, I've been super lucky to, to get into this field, and, and it starts with being really lucky to be born in Western North Carolina. My parents were not born here, but they were pretty smart, I think, in, in uh, moving here in the 1970s, you know, and, and being brave to, to uh, move to a really rural area uh, in Madison County, North Carolina, at about an hour outside of Asheville. And so that gave me the opportunity as a little tyke to to run around in the woods and play in the creek and and just have a a comfort and a love for the outdoors that, you know, was pretty easy for me. Uh, So that was was really, really lucky. And then really lucky to have friends growing up that liked to do things like rock climb or mountain bike, uh, get exposed to that a little bit, uh, you know disclaimer I'm scared of heights but I have rock climbed. <laughs> but uh, you know and also you know I always had a love of playing in the creek and for me that evolved into uh, to fly fishing I was lucky mm-hmm. to have uh, a neighbor who, who knew how to fly fish and he he saw me I was like 13 out there you know fishing with the worm in the creek and he said you know Josh you you're going to have a lot more fun if you learn to fly fish, and so he he took me under his wing and taught me how to fly fish and uh, taught me that it didn't have to be an expensive sport either. You can get you know your twenty dollar rod at the Kmart, and you know uh, it's something that that even somebody like me who didn't have a lot of uh, a lot of disposable income as a child <laughs> to, to do. I can relate. So, you know, so uh, I've been uh, been lucky to. to to really have a love for fly fishing since i was 13 and it's still something i love to do and you know and then when i was fortunate enough to, to go to college and and decided i wanted to go to unca because it was here you know i wanted yeah. to go i wanted to be in this region so i would said i want to go to unc asheville and was fortunate there that uh, i didn't know what i was getting into but it turns out there are great professors there and great biology department, great environmental studies department and being a smaller school, you're actually taught by those professors at a large, a lot of the larger schools, you know, the, my, uh, my friends who went to larger schools were being taught by graduate students. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to have one-on-one relationships with my professors and to do undergraduate research and botany and to really get to focus on botany and, and plants and, and learn a lot about the, uh, the plant life in this region, which, uh, you know, as you know, it's just so diverse. It's a great place to study botany. Yeah, so so that 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 led me into a lot of things, and one of the things that led me into was an interest in public land management because um, you know a lot of the best natural areas in the region are on public land.
0: And so, say more about that. Say more about getting involved in the public lands. What is it that you saw? What is it that you know? Said I need to take this just another step farther rather than just being you know informed as a as a biologist and having the love for the area what was that thing that just pushed you into this
1: well it was a little bit of passion and a little bit of luck uh so yeah while i was at unc asheville i i heard about this guy rob messick who uh, lives in Rutherford County. And Rob is a historian and a researcher, a, has a keen mind. And he, he got into looking for the last remnant old-growth forests in western North Carolina. And, you know, when I was a kid, the, the mythology was there is no old-growth forest. It's all been cut down. Mm. Now there might be a little bit Joyce Kilmer, but, the, you know, that's pretty much it. And uh, what I learned from, from Rob and, and through my own explorations and uh, was that that's not really true. Is that, uh, you know, a lot of the places where uh, public land was purchased in the early 1900s, like Smoky Mountains National Park and the Nanahill and Pisgah National Forest had some pretty significant old growth stands that were were specifically purchased by the government to protect those places. And just for example, Smoky Mountains National Park, about one third of that park has never been logged. Uh, And most people don't know that. Uh, yeah. But you know, you go to places like you know Cataloochee and get on the Boogerman Loop or the Cove Hardwood Nature Trail. You know, a lot of the other trails, the Upper Deep Creek, Raven Fork, uh, Ramsey Cascade Trail. I could go on and on. But there's a lot of places people can go and see Joyce Kilmer quality forest in Smoky Mountains National Park. And most people, you know, they just hear about Joyce Kilmer for wh- for whatever reason. So you know, I, I got into uh, to researching areas that were even less known. You know, the, the just the the most backwoods inaccessible steep places on Nanahill and pisgah national forest and i i actually uh trained a little bit with rob messick and then i was able to uh to write a grant to be rob's field assistant Hmm. uh in in 2004 and you know the interesting thing happened there was my grant got funded but rob was also writing a grant to do that work and his grant didn't get funded which was a tragedy so i had this grant funding and the uh there's this uh, local organization at the time called the Southern Appalachian Forest Coalition that agreed to be my fiscal sponsor. And so, uh, you know, my my grant paid me $8 an hour to have the best job I've ever had, <laughs> which is to ramble around the most remote places in Western North Carolina with a increment bore, which is a tool you use to core trees and count their rings and, and find the old trees. And so, you know, I was out there with the with the GPS and an increment bore and a map, and, and uh, trying to determine which areas of the landscape were these hidden gems of, of uncut old growth forests. And so that's that was my first job on public land, you know. And for about four years, I kind of did a lot of odd jobs. I did some contract biology work. I worked as a wilderness therapy guide. Um, I did some carpentry and some landscaping. And eventually, I got hired by a nonprofit environmental organization called Wildlaw promote their mission of uh, of restoring and protecting public land, which is very similar to the mission of Mountain True today. So I, I worked at Wildlaw for about four years, and in the uh, big financial downturn of 2008, uh, eventually that, uh, you know, wore away at Wildlaw's finances, and they had to close their Asheville office, as so I was going to be out of a job. But luckily, I was offered a job by the Western North Carolina Alliance, which became Mountain True.
0: Okay, so we got a little piece of the history there of Mountain True as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so, so you know if you want some more history on Mountain True, the short story is that there were several organizations. Western North Carolina Alliance was formed in 1982 out of Macon County, North Carolina by a woman named Esther Cunningham who was upset that uh, 900,000 acres of Nantahala and Pisgah National Forest had been leased to federal uh, pardon me leased by the federal government to oil and gas companies to explore mm. for oil. and they were leased at one dollar an acre. 900,000 acres. Luckily, we don't have any oil or gas uh, <laughs> on our national forest, but otherwise we'd have been in trouble.
0: Because <laughs> I was trying to think that I'm like, in this area, oil, I've never heard that before, but okay.
1: Yeah, so, so that's that's how Mountain True got started. In 1984, an organization called ECO was started in Hendersonville. Henderson County pretty much focused on that area. And then um, there was an organization, Jackson Making Conservation Alliance, at a, uh, you know the Highlands Castors area. And uh, finally, uh, just a couple of years ago, merged with the Hiawassee River Watershed Coalition. So, yeah, all these groups have come together in the past several years to form Mountain True, to form a bigger organization with more reach and with more efficiency. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's been uh, really good.
0: It's so amazing the number of groups like this that are here. And I'm wondering, in the other areas, you know, we're talking about the entire Blue Ridge. We're down here in the southern Appalachians, the southern Blue Ridge Mountains. But in your network and, and what you do for a living, are there groups like this that are, that exist up and down the chain of the Blue Ridge Mountains? Or are we just really unique and involved in that way?
1: I'd say we're, we're pretty unique in that, you know, the Asheville and western North Carolina area has a higher density of, uh, of uh, nonprofits and conservation nonprofits than just about anywhere. Okay. I mean, if you look at... Uh, the land trusts look at the wildlife organizations, the uh, water quality organizations, uh, you know, uh, the trail groups. I mean, it's just amazing the, the amount of conservation organizations we have around here. But there, there are those those sorts of organizations, like you said, up and down the Appalachians. I just think we happen to live in a uh, a real hot spot
0: for that. Do you think that goes back to something you talked about earlier, just about how, you know, we're so unique, the biodiversity, the temperate? Uh, Rate or the temperate forest and all of those things that make this area unique. Is you think that's kind of the contributing factors of why there's such a concentration right here?
1: I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it, it's hard to live here and not love this place. Amen. You know, that, that, it kind of comes down to that, and it's hard to visit here and not love this place. That's you right. Mean, this this really is a special area of the world. So I, I think it, a lot of it comes to that. But I also think you know the Asheville area is kind of the the capital of the Southern Appalachians in a way. Mm. Uh, you know, it's kind of central, right in the middle of it all, and um, you know, there's uh, just just a certain amount of uh, of energy and resources that comes from being kind of like in the middle of the Southern
0: Appalachians. That's very cool. Well, it's cool to kind of hear your story just a little bit. I know there's so many other parts of that story that we can kind of fill in some of the blanks, but it's interesting to me that, I mean, obviously you grow up here, you love it. You love everything that it offers. You became interested in it. You, you went to school for it. You, you, it sounds like you just kept following that passion, which ultimately has just led you to, to where you are, you know, today with Mountain True. And it seems like that theme of just loving it and caring for it has been consistent. At least with every story that you've you've shared with with me here today.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty cliche that you know uh, that that love is really important or passion can be really important. But for me, it's been true, and I've, I've been fortunate with that. And you know, I think another part of it is just being lucky to be part of a good community. I, I, not just a good community, but be be connected to several communities that have helped me along the way, and, uh, and had lots of uh, lots of mentors and. Uh, lots of people who have been willing to uh, to share what they know with me and to, to connect me to other people who are interested in the things I was interested in. So That's been really important for my journey as well.
0: So I have a question for you. What advice would you have? And we've touched on it a little bit earlier, but what advice would you have to somebody who maybe they don't live right here, but they have some of the very same passions and care? for the areas where, where they live and in, in, the, in the wilderness and the woods that they get to, to recreate in it, but they see something that's just not right maybe this place is just being overused or this place is being overworked and they just don't know where to go but they just have this burning desire in them that says this something's just not right for those people where what would you suggest as sort of a next step for them to to light that flame a little bit more to to get that flame burning a little bit hotter
1: Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think a real powerful thing to do is to connect with other people who sees the world that way too. So, I mean, like Esther Cunningham was just a retired school teacher in Macon County, but was saw 900,000 acres going up for $1 an acre. That that was public land that her husband and everybody she knew used to hike and hunt and fish and dig ginseng on and stuff like that. And she got, you know, just mad. And, And so she connected with a lot of other people and they, uh, They eventually uh, what that ended up doing was having uh, this really sustainably managed national forest that we have today was kind of the result of that grassroots work. And, you know, um, all these issues uh, at the end of the day are are local issues. And to make a difference, you, you really need to have the local culture and the local communities behind you. Yeah, and or, or you be behind them. I don't know how you want to think about it, but mm. I would I would say, you know, connecting with other people, if you're trying to make a difference is, is the way to is the way to make a difference. If you're trying to it uh, just deepen your own knowledge, I think, uh, again, connecting with other people is a great way to do that. But there's also amazing resources out there uh, with the Internet and with so many books that are out there. So, for instance, if you're interested in birds, you know, nowadays people have eBird. They have all these apps on their phone if you're interested in plants there's apps on your phone and different you know there's wikipedia and uh, there's uh usda plants and different things you can you can learn more about uh plants with uh, so you know i i think as far as uh kindling kindling your fire and your passion for for nature uh just do whatever you can for that whether it's uh whether it's getting out in the woods more, whether it's connecting with other people, whether it's reading more, all that stuff is valuable.
0: What value do you get from being in the outdoors, Josh? Like, I mean, you you yourself, when you think about you know a stressful day or you think about stressful situations, and 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 the outdoors being been an escape, what 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 do those resources mean to you personally?
1: Yeah, I mean, personally, uh, to me, uh, one of my favorite things to do is just to explore um and to to uh, get to know uh places i've been before even better and to get to know do places that i've never been i just i just love that and i i love i i love using my body to climb a steep mountain and feel like you know gosh i'm still alive i can mm-hmm. i can uh, breathe in and breathe out uh, i love being able to you know look around me and seeing all uh you know all the things i know I, it's amazing, you know, having uh, you know a forty-year life around here. And and when I when I looked out of my eyes, you know, thirty-five years ago, I didn't know a whole lot. Mm. And when I looked out of my eyes twenty years ago, I knew more. But compared to now, I didn't know a whole lot. And now I look out and I, I, there's just so much more I know. And even even with that, there's so much I don't know, and so much mystery I find, and so much um, so much finding myself being part of something that's so much bigger than me, and so much uh, more mysterious and, um, you know, just that connection to, uh, to a higher power that I get from, from being part of this amazing place and this amazing planet we all share.
0: Oh, that's uh, amazing.
1: It, you know, that, that's, um, I, I think it's something that's common to, to a lot of people, but I, I, that's, that's my experience and, and what I'm really thankful for about living in a place that has access to nature.
0: No, thanks for sharing that, Josh. Yeah, that's, That's huge, and I love the fact that your humility too. Here you are, somebody who is forty. You've been involved at a really key level of public land protection, and um, but yet you still say, you know, there's a lot I don't know. And so, even though I live in this this place, there's still so much more for me to discover, explore, and find out about where I live and the places I've been recreating for so many years. I I I love that humility in that because you you know you're not saying well you know listen I. I've been all over these woods and rivers and trails. I I, I know this place, but yet it still ke- continues to give back trip after trip after trip into the wilderness. So cool. Mm-hmm. So cool.
1: That's, yeah, the more you know, you know, the, the, more, the more you know, you don't know. <laughs> That's right. No, you're right. You're right.
0: Now, it's funny because my wife always asks you, at what point are you going to run out of content for this podcast? And I said, I don't think that can ever happen because – all we get to do is scratch the surface on some of these, these topics. And, you know, we could do, you know, four episode series out of these things, but there's, there's, there's just so much to discover. And there's so many cool people Mm -hmm. like yourself and all the people that you work with and the community that you're involved with that, You have a kindred spirit and they're the same thing. They, they, they love it. They want to protect it. They want to see it here for, you know, their grandkids and their grandkids, grandkids. And, and so without people like yourself and without taking an interest in, in uh, all the conservation efforts or, or restoration efforts, that's, that's, that's not going to happen. So passing that baton and passing that torch, I think is, is, is so huge. So, um, amen. yeah. Well, so what are some last things, Josh, that you would just love for people to know about public lands, protecting them, caring for them, loving them, exploring in them? What are some last few nuggets that you would have for them?
1: Well, I'll just say that it seems like right now, for some reason, you know, we live in a time of division. But uh, one thing that I think is still a unifying uh, topic, uh, at least in this region, is public land. Everybody loves public land and something we can all we can all still connect around nature mm. or that at least that's my sincere hope i really think that the majority of people can still connect when it comes to nature so that's that's a that's a hopeful thing um i would say uh, also uh folks that uh know that we need to invest in the things that we care about mm. uh, you know whether it be you know keeping our house in good order or uh or having well managed public lands we need to invest in those things so you know make sure that your uh, elected officials know that we need to invest in public land at the local state and federal level and and finally uh you know like we've hit on in the past uh, there's a place for everybody to be involved in the collective management of these lands that we all share and um, so it's a great privilege and a great responsibility to 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 be able to uh to have uh, these public lands so um let's make sure they're in good shape for our, uh, our great grandkids.
0: Well, Josh, listen, uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for sharing. First of all, thank you for having the passion that you have, but then also sharing that passion with us. And, um, you know, I, I can't write notes fast enough. And so I just gave up. I'm like, I'm just going to go back and listen to this over and over because you keep <laughs> dropping these truth nuggets and, and and they're so rich and good, but, The work you all do is, is so great. And we just covered just, I mean, just a fraction of what Mountain True does, but it's really, really important. Of course, they're all important, but, um, I just, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I want to invite you back anytime that you'd like to, to give us updates or perhaps when the, uh, when the, the new forest plan does come out this July, I think it would be really, really cool to sort of dissect that from your perspective and the perspective of somebody who is really uh, living in and, and, and working to, to be a good steward of these incredible resources that I know all of our listeners uh, know and appreciate for this area. So thank you for what you do. And Josh, just thanks for being here, bud.
1: Mike, it's been a pleasure. I'd love to come back on and do a deeper dive on any of these topics
0: public lands are a huge asset, and they provide so many benefits, but they're facing a lot of stressors and challenges of meeting the demand from multiple user groups. Environmental organizations are critical to the long-range sustainability of our public lands, and we owe a lot of gratitude to these groups. But hopefully we all now have a better sense that it's not just enough for us to say thank you and continue to be consumers of these lands. Our rivers, streams, and trails on public lands need our collective help if we hope for them to be around for generations to come i hope this episode moves you and me to learn more and get involved wherever and however you can from our finances to our time there is a place for everyone to invest in our public lands start with your local community town or state explore ways you can volunteer your time and talents i promise you won't regret it and finally kudos to josh kelly and mountain true for continuing to champion resilient forest Clean waters and healthy communities. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date with all future episodes. And by all means, please share this episode with anyone you know that loves our national forest and public lands as much as you do. Be sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram, and feel free to reach out to me at mike at explorationlocal.com if you ever have an idea for a future episode, or if you just want to connect. i love to connect with you in that way. Well, That's going to do it for this episode. Until we meet again, I encourage you to wander far, but explore local.